Welcome to HB TV. I'm Harry Benzwanger, the HB in HB TV. Today is Ask Harry Anything. We have some questions that have been postponed and some new ones. <clears throat> the first one Are criminal records made public a rights violation? Isn't your criminal record something that's between you and the courts, like your medical records? Like your medical records are between you and your doctor. What right does the government have to make that accessible after you've served your time? No, it is, the government does have a right to make your criminal record public because you violated someone's rights, you abandoned the protection of rights, that you have served your time does not, I mean, I'm talking as if it's you personally, but whoever it is, does not wipe the record clean, does not mean that other people don't have a right to be informed of the fact that you have been convicted, assuming it's a felony. There may be for lesser crimes, misdemeanors. Uh, there could be a right to privacy here, but the government has the same right that any citizen does, which is to know the public proceedings of the government. So I have a right to know that you were convicted and sent to prison. That's something the government did. And I have a right to know about I have the right to know the government did that. And I have the right to know that you violated rights according to the trial. That doesn't mean I necessarily believe that you were the person. Let's not keep calling it you. The person was convicted correctly. I might have a presumption that the court system in a semi-free or free society is functioning correctly and assume that you were a criminal if you were convicted. But perhaps I know certain facts that were not in evidence at the trial. I can form my own judgment. However, I certainly have a right to know what the government did to you. And I have the right to know what you were convicted of doing to somebody else. So you've got it all backwards. It's nothing like the doctor-patient relationship, which is private and involves no use of force. This is the realm of force, the realm of government retaliatory force, and the, the realm of your initiating force in violation of rights as convicted by a jury. And that is not something that one has any rights to keep quiet. Uh, and even though you, the person has served his time, that doesn't change the fact that history is history. The facts were as they were. Next one. My take on panpsychism. Silly and primitive. Panpsychism is the view that everything is conscious. Trees are conscious, rivers are conscious, stones are conscious. 
I was very sad to see that Isaac Asimov played around with that notion in his last in the Foundation series. Before I was mature, uh, I read the second, uh, you know, at 13, read Second Foundation and really liked it. And I still uh, have a certain fondness for it. So I read the later things he wrote about 30 years after he finished the three that formed the Foundation Trilogy. And he plays around with, a, kind of endorses the idea that walls are conscious. Consciousness is a specific thing. There's no reason to postulate it in entities that are not living, for sure, that do not have sense organs if they are living, and that do not have a brain if they have sense organs. There are primitive organisms that have, maybe you wouldn't call them sense organs, light-sensitive spots, but I believe no encephalization, no centralization of neural components in the brain. So I attribute consciousness generously back to the flatworm, which is the first, I think it's the flatworm, it's not the roundworm, uh, first evolutionary appearance of centralized neurons in what could be called a primitive brain. On the other hand, the same questioner asks, the senses considered as perceptual systems versus introduction to objectivist epistemology. Now, those of you who are not in the in-in crowd do not know what the hell this is about. So I'm going to bring you into the in-in crowd. Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology is this book, Ayn Rand's um, monograph on her theory of concepts, solving the age-old problem of universals. The sense is considered as perceptual systems. I cannot find my copy. It's a work by a non-objectivist whom I greatly admire, J.J. Gibson, James J. Gibson. The sense is considered as perceptual systems is his penultimate work. His last work was The Ecological Foundations of Visual Perception. I think I'm saying that right, and that is supposed to be right on my desk, but I don't see it. The latter work I've read more recently. It's very expensive to buy. James J. Gibson was a Cornell psychologist using psychology to refer to the study of perception, not the conceptual level, not emotions, but how we see, smell, touch, taste. And he was very philosophical. He was quite good philosophically. He called himself a direct realist, which is the correct position. 
It's not only realist, but does not put anything in between the observer and the observed. Naive realism imagines that when we see a tree, we have a little tree in our heads. That's indirect realism. We see images that hopefully represent things in the world. And then they get into trouble when it becomes clear that the way we see things is dependent upon our nervous system and is not to be compared to things in the world. And we have no other access to the world other than through our senses. So from that fact that we perceive by certain means, Kant draws the conclusion, therefore, we can't perceive reality. Not reality as it really is, just the reality as it's presented to us or represented to us. Gibson and Ayn Rand reject that and say that we perceive reality as it is. There's no reality as it isn't. We perceive directly the world, not through images. We do not perceive things that represent the world. We perceive the world. In a certain form, Ayn Rand adds, the fact that there are different forms of perception does not invalidate that perception is perception of an object. That's the form-object distinction. You can find it in one sentence in Thomas Aquinas Summa Theologicae, question two, article 85, if memory serves correct, but it's it's very hard to ferret out in Thomas. Nevertheless, he was on to it. And it's very important in the objectivist theory of perception. The means of perception creates the form in which you perceive. The means being physical. We're talking about sense perception now. Your eyes, your nervous system, your visual cortex in the nervous system, that determines that you see, for instance, the colors that we see when the wavelengths of light, which are just vibrations in the electromagnetic spectrum, strike our retina. Higher frequency, lower frequency waves, we don't see. We don't see radio waves, which are much higher frequency and therefore longer, no, shorter wavelength, sorry. They're lower frequency than light and therefore have a longer wavelength. And uh, infrared, you know, there are infrared cameras to see what we can't see. Infrared is shorter um wavelength than radio waves is almost up to the visual, but it's, if I've got my violet and red correctly on the right parts of the spectrum, it's just outside the range of vision. Uh, vision. I forget whether it's a little bit more energetic, higher frequency, or a little bit less energetic. Maybe it's more. And then ultraviolet is on the other side. It's either depending on what infrared is, it's either, it's the opposite. Just 
shorter wavelength or longer wavelength than the visual system responds to. Now, other organisms like bees see in the ultraviolet. They have different sensory apparatus. Bats have a kind of vision with echolocation, which is like sonar, doesn't even use the visual uh, form of uh, contacting the world. The blind is a bat because they are creatures of the night. So they need some something that works in darkness. I think they can see a little, by the way. But basically, they echolocate, just like a submarine. That's why they make those high-frequency sounds, because high-frequency means short wavelength, which means the ability to discriminate smaller distances. This is the kind of thing that Gibson would discuss and that valid theories of perception go into the physical side of the experience of perceiving. The philosophical point is bees aren't right and us wrong or vice versa. And if there are aliens on other exoplanets that perceive using some other means, if they perceive, they perceive more power to them. Hearing doesn't contradict sight. B sight doesn't contradict human sight. A form of awareness is a form of awareness. The only thing you can talk about is the quantity of information picked up, not the validity of the information. It's information is information. Facts are facts. There are no good facts and bad facts in the sense of, you know, valid facts and invalid facts. Facts are facts. Information is information. What an organism responds to is what it responds to. If I may continue this sort of detour, that's what that's why colorblindness is not an issue for the theory of perception, a philosophical theory of perception. Colorblindness means you get less information. It means you can't distinguish the colors that you're insensitive to, like red-green, strangely, is a frequent colorblind area. So a person can't tell red from green. The only way they can tell which of the stoplights is illuminated is by whether it's the top light or the bottom light or the middle light. So red and green both look either red to them or green to them or gray to them. I, I'm not sure which. But that's not an error any more than our not seeing ultraviolet is our error. Um, we can't hear frequencies that dogs can hear. I can't hear frequencies I could hear as a youngster. That's not a case of seeing a different reality or the senses deceiving me. It's getting less information. The equipment is old and less sensitive in my case. Certain, I think certain hair cells have died in my co uh, cochlear nucleus. Now that's part of the brain. I used to know all this. So what do I think of the differences now between Gibson and Ayn Rand? Well, I think Gibson's right. Wow. 
Why is that? Doesn't that make me in disagreement with objectivism? No, not at all, because objectivism is a philosophy. And Ayn Rand says that her understanding of the relation of sensation to perception, which is the issue here, is a scientific question. And I think she was relying on basically 19th century science, early 20th century. William James made a distinction between sensation and perception, and people studied sensations, and they thought sensations were combined into percepts. That little detail of science, I think, is wrong in ITOE. But she says it's a scientific issue, so it's not part of the objectivist philosophy. The philosophy is the part she <laughs> agrees with Gibson on, or he agrees with her. Neither one of them knew the other's work. Well, Gibson came to under uh, be familiar with some of Ayn Rand's work, thanks to Lee Pearson, who was his graduate student. But when he wrote The Senses Considered as Perceptual Systems, he was completely unfamiliar, and I'm not sure how much she had published on um, perception at that time. <clears throat> anyway, it's a long answer to say, read Gibson. It's fantastic. If you're at all interested in how the perceptual level works, the two books are, again, the senses considered as perceptual systems and the ecological foundations of visual perception. Don't let the word ecological throw you. He doesn't mean it in the modern sense. He means it really the biological foundations. The ecology there refers to the organism in its environment struggling to maintain its niche. It's called an ecological niche. So it was before that word took on an environmentalist meaning. I think that's a long answer to a short question, but it's a very interesting one. I did work as an intern in this field. That's why I like to talk about it. I worked with someone who held the same view as Gibson, and he told me that he think he thought Jimmy, as he called James J. Gibson, Learn from him. Do animals like cats and dogs have values? I know this is a scientific question, but I want your take. It depends on what you mean. In one sense, even plants have values. They have goals that are the equivalent of what human values are. But Ayn Rand told me once that she didn't mean when she talked about values for plants, the sunlight is a value to plants. She didn't mean it in the strict sense in which human beings have values. Uh, do animals have values? No, not in that sense. They have emotions, they have preferences, they have things they desire. They go after things they desire. But values in the full sense um, require 
action, purpose, and the necessity of choice in the face of alternatives, and they have no choice. So you can say, here, here's the truth and the way to think about it. Inanimate matter, there's no teleological dimension. There's no final causation. There's cause and effect, things happen. It, nothing that happens happens because it is good for or bad for a stone or a moon rock or um, a crater on the moon. Aside from life, there is no good and bad. And certainly there's no connection between what happens and any kind of continued existence of the thing. For plants, they're living organisms and primitive uh, animals. This would be true of too, like sponges, coral. They, their actions have been selected for survival value in evolution. This is my theory of teleology, of goal-directed action. Just as the structures of organisms are explained by natural selection for survival value, so the action patterns of organisms, all organisms, are explained by natural selection for the actions that promote survival and reproduction. Some organisms are conscious, the higher animals. And as I say, I think maybe it goes down to the worm. Those animals can experience emotions because there is a distance. Perception is a distance awareness of what's coming or something that they can get to. So if you take a one-celled uh, hydra or yeast particle, it's classified as an animal. It doesn't photosynthesize. It eats things that have photosynthesized, but it only reacts locally. Something touches it and it reacts to that. Perception means an array in space and movement. So, the fact that you can see something away from you and realize that you perception now that you can get there or you can get away from it if it's a predator is the origin of desire and fear. What you do in the presence of desire and fear is a kind of purposeful action, but it isn't for animals chosen. It's automatic. They, the zebra smells the lion, sees it over there, runs that way. Uh, the male stickleback fish sees a red dot on something that looks sort of like a female fish. It swims towards it because that's what the female fish, female stickleback displays when it's in heat, desire. But there's no choice involved in either case nor would there be any purpose evolutionarily for choice. In order for choice to bring survival value, it has to be the choice to pursue a line of thought. And they don't have any lines of thought. 
So human beings have choice, chosen purposes, long-range action, something they can not just, oh, I want that, cookie, oh, that's not a value in the objectivist sense. The higher sense of value is I want to get promoted to vice president at my firm. Advancement is a value of mine. The next rung up is vice president. Every morning when I come into the office, I'm going to think about what would make me more approvable for a promotion. And I'm going to do that. That's very different from cookie. That's a long range, chosen, demanding uh, purpose that explains why. Going right back to this, the plant turning towards the sun, the action is goal-directed. You can explain why what happens happens in terms of it's good for the organism. The plant turns towards the sun because it's good for the organism, and therefore those that turn towards the sun outcompete in survival of the fittest, those that don't. The person working for the advancement will probably outcompete the person who isn't. You can explain why he stayed late at the office, why he racked his brain over a simpler way to express the thought he wanted to communicate to his boss, by his value, by what it will lead to, by its value to him. So they're all the same broad thing goal-directed action, or the technical term is teleology, end causation, final causation. You act to get the good, the good for you. But there are different these different categories, and the main thing is to keep them straight. Listening while studying for my quantum final, you have my sympathy. What is the future of applying objectivism to the weirdness of quantum mechanics? Anything exciting new on this front? Yes and no. Uh, various objectivists, including me, have taken on the weirdness of quantum mechanics. And the best person is not me, but Travis Norson who's a professor, professor in the philosophy of science in a, some, uh, uh, maybe Tufts, some New England university, I forget right now. And he champions the bohm de Broglie interpretation of quantum mechanics, which involves uh, pilot waves. And he also thinks that the double delayed choice experiment shows that there's faster than light transmission of information and causation. Incidentally, so does um, Sabine Hofstadter. Is that her name? You know, the woman who has so many physics, very interesting physics lectures on YouTube. You can Google that one. Uh, I think it's pretty good in, in the line I'm thinking. 
I gave a talk in the 80s on uh, from Hume to Heisenberg, showing that the quantum results, the weirdnesses, did not have to be there, and that they were there because the proponents of this theory wanted them there. Uh, the um, Bohr, uh, who was who the father of quantum, did not like causality. So here's, here's one thing you can think of. There's the so-called measurement problem. You know that things are in, this is Schrodinger's cat. There are things that are in many states at once, contradictory states, until they're measured. When we measure them, we only find they're in one state. But before that, the theory is they're in a uh, superposition of many states. Measurement collapses the wave function. There's one little problem with that. What's a measurement? There are two things you can mean by measurement. Both of them have undesirable results. One of them is what measurement actually is, which is a consciousness establishing the relative quantity of something in relation to a unit that that consciousness has selected. So measurement in the ordinary sense means consciousness identifying a relationship to a unit. Oh, this is six inches long. Six inches, concepts of consciousness. An inch is a unit selected to break down the length. There's no six inches in reality. There's that which six inches refers to, but there's also that which, uh, what would it be, um, more centimeters, 10 centimeters refers to, or this much. So it's not inherent, the inch, six inches is not inherent in reality. It involves a consciousness. So if you want to say, oh, consciousness collapses the wave function, then you're really in the primacy of consciousness and you're in la-la land. Then you're saying it's the seeing of it. It's not the Geiger counter clicking. It's not the yardstick or the meter stick being up against. It's somebody coming in and look, oh, it's one meter long. That ram. That act of awareness collapses the wave function in external reality. Mysticism. So maybe you say, well, no, measurement is the is the uh coming up against a measuring instrument, not anyone seeing it. So the Geiger counter ticking would register something and it would be a measurement. Oh, really? Then every physical reaction is a measurement. Every physical reaction could be used as a standard of measurement. So you can't limit it to meter six and Geiger counters. The stress on a pencil before it breaks measures the tensile strength of the pencil. 
the imprint of your bottom on the seat cushion measures the weight of you and the, the elasticity or the deformability of the cushion. Every physical interaction could be taken as a measurement once you leave consciousness out. So there, the wave function would be collapsing right away, his first interaction with anything. So that's called the measurement problem, and quite a problem it is. Um, now, so read Travis Norson, read Bohm, David Bohm, look up Bohm de Broglie, you know, Louis de Broglie, a physicist in the 20s who was one of the gang. Uh, D-E-B-O-G-L-I-E, -E, like de Broglie, but it's de Broglie or something like that. Now, we have some other questions, but not too many. I think one more. So let me take it. Yeah, one more. By the methods Dr. Peikoff lays out in objectivism through induction, have you considered the meaning behind the term gender or masculinity and femininity? Uh, yes and no. I haven't specifically um, consciously done that, but the, the objectivist psychology, if you can call it that, uh, has a theory of masculine, Ayn Rand, let's put it that way. Objectivism doesn't have a theory of masculinity and feminine. That's not philosophy. But Ayn Rand personally had a theory of masculinity and femininity, which is um, both hopelessly old-fashioned and absolutely true. And it is exactly based on induction. It's based on the facts of what little girls are and little boys are, how they learn about their differences. There's one fact I would add. There's three dominant facts that um, she calls upon. But I would add one, and that's reproduction. Women are the childbearers, and this makes them have a certain attitude towards men. They risk pregnancy. Now, today, with birth control, this is fading. But before 1960, before a woman would have sex, she had to really trust the man because her life could be ruined and abortion was illegal. So, But it, it's no fun to have an abortion even when it's legal. So there was... Feminine recalcitrance, having to be wooed, I think, this is not Ayn Rand, has to do with the risk she realizes at a certain age she runs if she has sex. And even with birth control, it isn't perfect. So, yes, uh, there is an inductive approach to masculinity and femininity. And to read that, you would... to to learn about that, you would have to read the writings in the Objectivist magazine by a betrayed 
evil, villainous objectivist once. Uh, you can look it up. Romantic Love is a, a title, I think. But you'll see it in the collected volumes of the objectivist, which I'm going to Most of these things by Ayn Rand in here have been anthologized and appear in like the Romantic Manifesto, but um, the writings of other people have not. And this she published, so she endorsed it, and he got it from her. Let's see if I can the title quickly. Oh, you can read an answer to readers about a woman president by Ayn Rand in the December 1968 edition. And that is reprinted in The Voice of Reason, I believe. That doesn't give the whole case, but just to show you how hopelessly old-fashioned she and I are, She was asked by Look Magazine, which was a, remember when there were magazines? Um, what was the question? The question had to do with a woman president. And I can't remember when, what form it was phrased. I guess I could look it up. It's not important. She said she would not support a woman candidate and would not vote for a president, would not vote for one. I don't go that far. I would. Um, she said no rational woman could desire the role of president. And the word is desire. She might do it if she had to, if there were no men to do it, but she wouldn't want to. And the reason in a sentence is that the woman is commander in chief and is in power, even in a free society, over all men. And that is a role that a healthy woman would not want to be in. Now, if you think that's far out, just change the measurements a little and you'll get the principle. Do you think a, a rational woman would want to be the leader of an army? And the leader of the whole military, you just think of that. Suppose it's a monarch, and she's going to dress in battle gear, you know, in the Middle Ages or whenever, and lead the troops into battle the way the, a, man would, a man would. Do you think that that is a feminine position and that a woman would want to be in that? And be able to say, suppose she had absolute power, you know, off with his head. Is that a feminine position? No. And I think you can see it in that. And then the only question is, well, does the president of the United States it doesn't have anything like that power? Then you're arguing about details. You've gotten a principle. But today, probably you young people don't even get that, right? You don't get femininity and masculinity. I, I can't end this without saying what she thought femininity was, and that was hero worship. Hero worship for specifically male masculine qualities. 
And masculinity was strength, psychoepistemological strength, mental strength, strength of character, like our heroes have. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week on an entirely different subject. Bye.